we return now to the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 26 through 42. The message is, the Spirit is willing, but... Dot, dot, dot. Can you all finish it? The Spirit is willing, but... You all know that verse, right? Do you know who said that? Jesus actually said that. And Jesus said that to his intimate followers, his apostles. And he said it to them in a moment of crises. It was a personal crisis for him and for them. And they didn't quite realize what they were about to face. And we all face it in different ways. So let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, as we come before your holy word now, it's inspired by God and it is profitable for every area of life. And we thank you that this scene in the, at the Last Supper and into the Garden of Gethsemane is a great scene for us to learn so much about life, about the weakness of our flesh, about the willingness of the Spirit, about what you did for us, Lord. You did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and we're just so grateful for your grace and your mercy. We look forward to a year where your mercy is poured out on our lives and where we can extend it to others, Lord. We have one life to live, and we know soon it will be passed. We can look back at a year when so many people entered into eternity. Names that are familiar to us, people who p passed away this year or last year, and, and they're gone. Their, their imprint is over on this planet. And we have a year ahead of us, a year that we can exploit for your purposes, Lord, and we want to do just that. So help us in the area where we're weak, the areas where we're weak, and make us strong, make us more like you. Open our ears to your word. Let us have receptive hearts and conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The Spirit is willing. You have a spirit, and uh, the Bible makes that very clear, that you're not just your body. The Bible says in James 2.26 that without the Spirit, the body is dead. And without faith, or without works, faith is dead, being by itself. There's going to be works that come out of your life. Now, works don't save you, but works give evidence to a salvation that you do possess in Jesus Christ. In Mark 14, 38, this is where the title for this message comes. Mark 14, 38, Jesus said, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing. The, the word spirit there is pneuma. The flesh, but the flesh is weak. The word for flesh is sarks, if you're interested. Pneuma and sarks. Now, the spirit there probably is our spirit. That is our inner person. In Romans 7, verses 22 and 23, Paul said, In the inner man, on the inside, who I am, I joyfully concur with the law. But I see another law working in the members of my body or my flesh. And there's another law going on where I am tempted to do the wrong thing quite often. My spirit is willing. My flesh is weak. You might say, well, what does your flesh represent? Your flesh represents that part of your humanity that is still susceptible to sin. As a Christian, you're redeemed, but you haven't arrived yet. You're not in glory. You don't have your resurrection body yet. So you still deal with whatever is the remaining remnants of your humanity, of your susceptibility to sin. Over the holidays, uh, I found my susceptibility uh, quite often in uh, banana bread, pumpkin rolls, glorious cookies. They just kept coming. Last night, we hung out with some friends for New Year's Eve, and there was a bunch of uh, just stuff on the table. Caramel popcorn and cookies. And, this, and then there was, a, there was a vegetable platter. My spirit was willing to go for the vegetables. My flesh, I found myself just reaching into bags of things, wonderful, sweet things. And at some point, I didn't even know why I was eating them anymore. They were just there. <laughs> My spirit, you know, like I made a declaration yesterday morning, I must confess. I said, you know, I need to lose about 10 pounds. So today, have you, anybody ever done this before? Today, 
No more cookies. My wife's preparing a vegetable platter. I will be going to the vegetables. But my flesh <laughs> was weak. Even this morning, I had two offers of maple bars. I turned the first one down. <laughs> trying to be strong. Then a cute little girl brought me a maple bar. Here, Pastor Michael, Happy New Year's. <laughs> I was like, ah, what can I do? It's a little child. i got to receive it. How could I ruin her day? We can't use this as an excuse, though. We can't say to our loved ones, you know, my spirit was willing. <laughs> but sorry, uh, flesh was weak. We don't use grace as an excuse for sin, but we all know that we struggle with doing the right thing as consistently as we want to do. At the Last Supper, Pastor Chris took us up to verse 25 in Mark 14, and we took a little break as we did Christmas. But at the Last Supper, we find out a couple things. There, there's this beautiful institution of the Lord's Supper where Jesus takes the Passover meal and he, he converts it or transforms it into the representation of his body and his blood. The matzah represents his pierced body. The wine represents his shed blood for our sin. And he said, I long to share this Passover with you. It was a beautiful time that he had prepared. But at that Passover meal, according to Luke 22, 23 and 24, the apostles were arguing back and forth about two primary things. One is, they were wondering which one of them would betray him they didn't know that Judas was the betrayer, by the way. Judas did not walk around with horns coming out of his head, just so you know. Judas, we just knew it. They didn't know. And they kept saying, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And they were arguing about something else, according to Luke, and they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. The night before Jesus was going to go to the cross for them, they were still arguing all the way up. To his crisis moment. And here's how the text begins. It says in verse 26 of Mark 14, and after singing a hymn, this is the end of the Passover meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now it's interesting that Jesus did sing, by the way. He sang a hymn here. And just a side note, we do know what he sang. Because at the Passover meal, the traditional conclusion of that meal was to sing the latter half of what's called the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are Psalm 113, Psalms 113 through 118. The word Hallel means praise, and it's the root where we get our word Hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. So when you see the Hallel Psalms, they're called the praise Psalms, and they were sung at the feast days. The latter half of the Hallel was sung at the end of the Passover. And Jesus sang, he was probably leading the worship. If you want to turn over to Psalm 116, let's go to the, there together. We'll take a peek at what they were singing. And scholars say that they would sing in what's called antiphonal praise. What does that mean? That means that one of them would typically lead like the table leader. In this case, Jesus was definitely that. And then the others who were at the dinner would respond. In the, at the appropriate time. So let me just give you a, a taste of what they would have sung through, what Jesus would have been leading them to sing, and you're going to see how much it applies to his own life as he is just hours away from, his, from the crucifixion and him facing the cross. But I want to ask you this question, and I want to give you some application about how to be better, how to walk in the Spirit in 2017. And one of the ways that you can do that is to get into the Bible and get the Bible into you. And if you do nothing else in 2017, can I recommend a reading plan? One psalm a day. One psalm a day. There's 150 psalms. So that'll take you through about half of the year or more. No, about half of the year. A little less than half. And as you go through the psalms, you're going to find some of them you can read in about a minute. When you get to Psalm 119, that's going to take you a little bit more time. <laughs> it's the longest chapter in the Bible. I think there's 160-something verses. But this is something that you can do. If you want to make a resolution 
and I'm not telling you to make any vows here, but if you want to make a commitment for the new year, I would encourage you to go through the Psalms. They're, they will be like medicine to your soul. But let me ask you this question. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified the next day. Would you be singing the night before you face crucifixion? Would you go to a praise service? You know, one of the best ways to prepare yourself for your own crosses in life, now I'm using the metaphor, none of, none of us can even come close to what Jesus had to face, but he did say to take up your cross and follow him. And so one of the best ways to prepare yourself to walk this life out as a Christian is to be a person of worship. To choose worship, to choose getting the word of God into you and singing praises to God. In fact, 40 times in the Psalms we're exhorted, no less than 40 times, to sing to the Lord, to honor him through song. Hebrews 13, 15 says we're to offer the sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of our lips, doing what? Giving thanks to his name. That's one of the sacrifices that we make to God in the New Testament. It's one of the ways that we feed our spirit. Psalm 116, verse 1 says, I love the Lord. This is what they would have sung through. The Psalms are really songs, the songbook of Israel. I love the Lord, Psalm 116, 1, because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me. The terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. As we go into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, these words are repeated by Mark. He felt distress and he felt sorrow. These words, these songs were ministering to his soul as well. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Skip down to verse 9. No, let's keep going. Verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For thou hast rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I'm sure Jesus could have been thinking of his resurrection there. Go down to verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Jesus had committed himself to the cross. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Thinking of Jesus as well, that applies to us, but to Jesus. O Lord, surely I am thy servant, and I am thy servant. I am thy servant, the son of thy handmaid, thou hast loosed my bonds. To thee I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. O may it be in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. And then the people would respond at the table. You ready? Praise the Lord, there's your, one of your Hillel Psalms. In Psalm 117, this is a psalm that will take you a few seconds to read. Here's what it says. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. Jesus was about to die for all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. And all God's people said, praise the Lord. Boy, it sounds like it's New Year's Day out there. Praise the Lord. Ready? Praise the Lord. Now go into Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is good. And this is how they would respond in antiphonal praise. The leader, Jesus probably here, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And they would respond, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Skip down to verse 5. From my distress I called upon the Lord. Look at verse 6. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me, verse 7, among those who help me. Therefore I sh shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Skip down to verse 13. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Skip down to verse 17. I shall not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. And then down to verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus was about to be whipped with a cat of nine tails. He would be scourged in an awful way, probably tied much in the same way a festival sacrifice would be tied as he then was whipped. Thou art my God, I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And all God's people said, his loving kindness is everlasting. Now that's how they would have finished this meal. That's what they sang through in a back and forth type of praise. Jesus did sing, and there's implications if you go to the Gospel of Mark that we will hear him sing when we are with him, according to Hebrews, I think it's chapter 2. So Mark 14, after this incredible exchange, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives, just east of the Temple Mount, uh, just across the uh, Kidron Valley, or the Brook of the Kidron. And in verse 27, after this wonderful time, Jesus shares this hard truth. He drops this bomb on them. He said, Mark 14, 27, He said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, one of the sad things that you can see upon the earth, and it's behind me, represented in this picture, is to see sheep that scatter in a panic. Uh, it doesn't take much to panic a sheep. Uh, it could be a stray jackrabbit. It could be a rustling in the bushes, and they will take off. But one of the things that settles sheep down more, like, more than anything else is the voice and the presence of their shepherd. When Jesus looked over a multitude of people in Matthew 9, he saw them distressed and downcast like sheep, remember, without a shepherd. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. It'll send out more workers into his harvest field. I want you to feel the image for a second. The shepherd is going to be struck, and God is behind this, because prophetically the father would crush the son, Isaiah 53, 10. It was the Father's good pleasure to crush him that he would become a sin offering. And when the shepherd was struck, the apostles were the sheep of his flock. And on that night, they would scatter. It's a very sad thing, but I want you to think about for a second if you had a uh, kind of a Middle Eastern scene and you had a shepherd there and these sheep had known him their whole life and all of a sudden, let's say a, a, a ferocious animal or some robber came in and killed the shepherd and he lay dead. What do the sheep do now? How do they found, find their food, protection? How do they find green pastures and still waters? Well, Jesus quoted here from a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last book of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. And the prophecy that Jesus quotes is an interesting prophecy. In verse 1 of Zechariah 13, it says, In that day a fountain or a cleans of cleansing will be opened for the house of David for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. This is Zechariah 13, 7, what Jesus quotes. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. See, they had been arguing and they had been debating about which of them was going to be the greatest, but they had overlooked something very critical. In fact, a lot of them, I still think, they could not accept that he was about to die. So they wanted positions on his right hand and his left hand. They were worried about, maybe at this time he's going to restore the glory of Israel, the throne of David. Rome's going to finally leave. We're not going to be occupied anymore by this, this foreign occupier. But Jesus was about to go to the cross. And he said to the group, you're all going to fall away. Look at verse 27. The Greek word for fall away there is, Scandalizo. The word in English means to be scandalized by something. It means to trip up. And it can even mean to run away or fall and fall hard. The good news for us this morning or leading into this afternoon is this. That the apostles that were there that night, except for Judas, their trip up was as sheep. They knew the shepherd. Only one of them was not going to make it, and we already know who that one was. He was a devil from the beginning. He was the betrayer. He was never really with Jesus. 
Whatever his motive and reasons were for being there, he was stealing, he was uh, plotting, and finally he was possessed by Satan literally at the Last Supper and led the group, this huge group, to take Jesus to seize him. But other than Judas, Jesus said, Of all that you gave me, Father, I lost not one. All these men who scattered on this night, including Peter, who's going to deny him three times, as we all know, they were still his people. They were still the sheep of his pasture, even though they had stumbled hard. Peter stumbled to the point that he went out and wept bitterly. I don't even know, know if he knew what to do with himself after he had done such a thing. But all of them were still sheep. In fact, Revelation 21 says their names are written on the found, foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, you'll be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They tripped up, but their tripping up was not permanent. But this night, they would be shown how weak they really were. Now, I've been walking with the Lord for almost three decades now. And I've discovered something. As much as I'm in the Bible and I preach and I try to live out my faith, I've discovered something. The closer I get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more sinful and weak I realize my flesh is. Can I get a witness? There's so many times when you know, everything in me wants to do the right thing, whether it's witnessing to someone or praying more or getting into my Bible more. I can make my whole list, just like I know you have a list. There's so many things that I want to do that I, I feel like I fall short in all the time. I'm sure you can relate. But each time I go back and visit what's happened in my life, God has transformed my life to a place I can't, even imagine without him. I don't know what I would be without the Lord today. But I'll tell you this. The closer I get to him, the more weak I realize my flesh is. The more uh, I realize that it's a battle. I cannot just think that I've arrived. This night, Jesus says, I will strike down the sheep, quoting Zechariah 13, and the sh the sh I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered they were all going to fall away, but their fall would not be permanent. And some of you are sitting here, and maybe you've made a huge mistake. Maybe you stumbled hard. Maybe you were a person involved in ministry, and you've lost your way. There's a way back. There was a way back for Peter. Jesus says, after I've been raised, look at verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee, you could call Galilee the place of restoration. Peter would be restored there. The rest would be restored. And I want you to notice, Jesus says, after I've been raised. Jesus was already prophesying again his resurrection. You see, it didn't end at the cross, brothers and sisters. It ends with a resurrection and a high priest that's now in heaven, whoever lives to intercede for you and me. He's alive. And because he lives, you will live. And there's a spiritual application here that I hope you can grab onto, and it's this. No matter what you're going to face this year, no matter what the ups and downs are going to be, you can always live in the light of the resurrection. Because one day there will be a place where Satan is bound for a thousand years, a place where righteousness dwells, where the wolf and the lamb lie together, lie down together, where the little kid will play at the hole of the snake, and they will not hurt in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That day is coming. As we've said in previous messages, this is the worst it's going to get for a Christian. And most of us have it pretty good. Amen? We have a lot of blessings to count. And Jesus says, when I've been raised, I am going to rise. It's not going to end at the cross. I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Now, Peter was feeling pretty brave and pretty strong. We've got to give Peter some credit. As much as we bag on Peter, and a lot of us can relate to Peter, he suffered from hoof and mouth disease, right? Constantly inserting his foot into his mouth. But Peter was the one that stepped out of the boat and walked on the water, wasn't he? I didn't see anybody else walking on water except for Jesus. Peter did have a sword and Peter would fight for the Lord in the garden. And we'll see that in a message that's coming up where he will try to protect his Lord in the midst of all that was going on. 
But Peter made a declaration. Matthew records it this way, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And we've all heard the phrase, never say never. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, take heed lest you fall. Never are we more susceptible to sin and falling to it than when we are making confident declarations in our own ability. Sometimes as Christians we think, oh, I've arrived now. (laughs) You know how many chapters of the Bible I read this morning? I read a whole book of the Bible. Yeah, it was Philemon. There's only one chapter. (laughs) And we can get a little puffed up. We say, well, other people may need to do that kind of elementary stuff, but not me. Peter says, I'm not going to fall. Jesus said to him, verse 30, Truly I say to you that you yourself this very night, before a cock crows twice, the the rooster crow uh, usually happened in the third watch of the night, somewhere uh, between midnight and 3 a.m. In the fourth watch of the night, it was kind of the uh, warning of the approaching dawn. And Jesus says, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, look at verse 31. This is very strong language. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And just so we don't miss it. And they all were saying the same thing too. Yeah, 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 what he said. Yeah, we'll, we'll stand strong. And Peter made a declaration even if I have to die for you. And it would just be hours later that a little servant girl said to him, at the, I believe it's at the fire, you are one of them. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that man. A man that had just confidently said, I'll die with you, couldn't even stand before a servant girl. That's what our flesh will do. You see, if the Lord had said to you, This night, you're going to deny that you know me three times. Would you do a little soul searching? Would that cause you, would you say something like this? Man, I've been with Jesus three and a half years, and I know one thing about him. He always tells the truth. It's impossible for him to lie. So maybe what I should do is go over and pray. Maybe what I should do is go over and do some soul searching. How many many times do you think Peter, in his future life, replayed this, this exchange? You ever had one of those moments? Lord, can I get a do-over? We have those in racquetball. It's great. And in golf, if you're a golfer that takes mulligans. That's called a do-over. And sometimes when we don't have an opportunity to do a do-over, we we regret moments in our lives. Sometimes there are major turning points in our lives, and we say, woulda, shoulda, coulda, but didn't. And I'm sure Peter replayed this moment. I'm sure he probably said, Matt, I was so prideful. Why didn't I listen to him? Look, do you have moments in your life that you wish you could do over? I'm sure we all do. And I'll tell you what, you have an opportunity because you have a new day ahead of you, a day filled with grace. Now they all would make it But Satan was demanding permission to sift Peter as wheat. Peter was in the crosshairs, and he didn't know it. See, the Lord knows a lot more about the spiritual battle than we do. We think we're prepared, and sometimes the Lord's saying, you better slow down and pray. You see, most of our failures happen way before the moment comes. I'm sure you've probably noticed. When we fail, it's because we've we've failed to prepare. You see, usually when a moment comes, if I'm spiritually ready for that moment, I can deal with it. But if I haven't prepared myself and I get, I get hit, I get blindsided, then that's when things go really, really bad. And this would be that kind of night for all of them. It would be a night of temptation that they would fall to. Temptation is something that we're all going to face in our lives. We just need to be ready and prepared. So notice, they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Now Gethsemane was a very familiar place. It's a place that Jesus went quite often with his disciples. 
And Gethsemane is a place you can visit today. If you decide to go with us to Israel in two, spring of 2018, we'll take you to the Garden of Gethsemane. I got to preach there about 10 years ago. It was a very moving experience for me. Olive trees in this place that may date back to the time of Jesus. And Ray Vanderlaan's done, done a series where he's gone back and looked at some of the history associated with Israel. And back in the day in Israel, of course, olives were big business. They had olive oil for consecration and food purposes and stuff. And they had all these olive trees. And what they would have is they would have something that was called an olive press. And get, that's what Gethsemane literally means. It's called the olive press. And they would take olives, they would harvest the olives, and they would put them in something that's called a sea. It's a large, big basin, almost looks like a stone cauldron. And they would put the olives in there, and they would, they would take a donkey or a beast of burden, they would put a pole through a circular stone, and the, the beast of burden, the donkey, would, would, he would circle the basin and crack the olives open with the circular stone. Once the olives were cracked open, they would take something called a Gethsemane. It was literally a rectangular stone object, very, very large and heavy. And the Gethsemane would go down onto the olives and it would press the olives and squeeze olive oil down a chamber into a basin where they would catch it at the bottom. Jesus went into a place called Gethsemane and Luke says he was praying very fervently, feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders, the sin of the world, literally. And as it were, great drops, something like great drops of blood were flowing to the ground. Some people believe this is metaphorical, but even if it's a metaphor, it's still a picture of him being squeezed with the Gethsemane. He's the olive, and his, life is, his life's blood is going to be poured out for the sins of the world. The Gethsemane is literally coming down on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's feeling the weight of the world. And if it was literal, then he went through a process that's called hematidrosis, where you're under so much pressure that tiny capillaries under your skin begin to burst, and you sweat out of your sweat glands drops of blood. And this whole scene has been painted by the Holy Spirit. And here's the incredible nature of the scene. The whole thing started in a garden. Do you remember Adam and Eve in a garden? Only one tree they were told not to mess with. One tree, they had access to all the other trees. And in a garden, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, undoes or fixes or passes the test. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam conquers in a garden. Where the first Adam did not stand between the serpent and his bride, the first Adam, the last Adam does just that. And he says, if it's me that you want, let these go their way. He stands between the serpent and his bride. And he's in the garden just looking for some support from his human friends. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. I've made known to you the will of God. Sit here. The idea is just stay with me. He's feeling the pressure, the weight of the cross. Not just the physical nature of the cross, which is bad enough. It's quite possible that Jesus had even seen people crucified by Rome. He was imagining the physical pain, but it was more than that. It was the sins of the world and the wrath of his Father coming down on him. I don't think we can even fully fathom what he was facing. And the Bible says he took with him Peter, verse 33, and James and John. They were kind of the inner circle. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. The phrase very distressed means to be Alarmed, it can speak of terror, astonishment, great distress, even has the idea of trembling. The word troubled in verse 33 is a Greek word which means distress, anguish. It's the strongest of the Greek words that could be used in the New Testament and can also speak of depression. Jesus is on the eve of the cross facing the biggest moment of his life, the biggest test of his life. And where they would fail that night, he would succeed. And where we have failed, Christ succeeds. That's why Christianity is a message of salvation by grace. Through faith. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that 
No one should boast. Jesus is paying it all. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them. And he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Evidently, he was in such agony that he was falling on his face, casting himself to the ground. And he was saying, 36, Abba, Father. Abba is a, an Aramaic term that speaks of almost like daddy. It's a very endearing term, an intimate term. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. We see Jesus in obedient surrender, but we see something else, and this is a spiritual application I want to give to you guys. That when you are facing your own crosses, quote, in quotes, your own Gethsemane moments, the best thing you can do is press into your Father. You see, Abba is a term in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 where we can call God Abba, Father. You are God's child. God is not against you. He is for you. He knows what you're going through. So the best thing that you can do when you're dealing with your hardest temptations is to press into him. But the thing that we tend to do is run from him when we're struggling. It's not like he doesn't know that you're struggling. So I have found something, and I'm not saying I'm successful at this all the time, but I want to just give it to you as part of your strategy. When you are dealing with the heat of temptation, press into God. And just say, be honest with him, and just say, Father, this thing looks very attractive, very tempting to my flesh. Everything in me wants to go this way. Would you please help me? Would you remove this cup, this struggle? And he will be faithful every time. Every time you decide to let him in, he will give you persevering grace to make it. The problem is, we don't always do that. We try to go it alone. Or sometimes, frankly, we're embarrassed. Like, Lord, I, I don't want to share this with you again. You ever been there before? I don't want to tell you again that I'm struggling with this thing. Okay, everybody ready? Buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be deep. Temptation, by definition, is tempting. If it weren't, we wouldn't call it temptation, Right? If it didn't look good or attractive to us, it wouldn't be tempting. We wouldn't give it a second thought. So when you're facing temptation, just understand that's what it is by definition. It's going to be something that looks good. So You're going to have to say, Father, help me. In Jesus' case, he wanted to go the other way. He was saying, if there's another way, look, here's a good way to pray. All things are possible for God. Everything's possible for him, but we need to say, not my will, but what? Yours be done. This is a great prayer of faith, and by the way, it's not a weak prayer. It's not a cop-out to say, your will be done. I think it's a great prayer of faith to say, your will be done. You may say to God, this is the way I'd like things to go, but I know your will's better than mine, and I think it's a greater prayer of faith to say, Lord, I'm going to surrender to your will either way. Amen? I think we should pray in faith. I think we should believe God for big things. I think we should say all things are possible. When the uh, Hebrew youth are in the fire or being uh, warned that they're going to be thrown into the fire, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow to your idol. We believe God can and will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we are not bowing to your idol. That's faith. That's faith facing the fires of life. I believe God can. I believe he will. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to stop following him. And he came. Look at verse 37. The cup is the cup of divine wrath. Uh, many uh, scriptures in the Old Testament speak of this divine wrath that Jesus had to drink. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, that's Peter's old name, right? Jesus renamed him to Peter, which means what? So he said, hey, Rock, uh, no, he, said, he called him Simon here. He said, Simon, 
old name, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? You just made these great declarations about dying and going to prison with me. He said, keep watching and praying. One of the solutions to uh, our spiritual strategy for the coming years found in verse 38. We need to keep watching. The way to say this is keep awake, stay awake, and keep praying. That you may not come into the ESV and uh, New King James say enter into the NIV says fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The temptation is not the issue. Temptations are going to arise in this fallen world. They're everywhere. The key is not to enter into the temptation. The key is not to fall to it. And another strategy is don't put yourself in unnecessary temptation. Everybody with me? So you have the leftover cookies from the holidays and you've made a declaration. I'm going to lose 10 pounds, carrots and celery <laughs> for the next two weeks, right? Well, if you leave the Christmas cookies on the counter, you have set yourself up for temptation. Unnecessarily. Give them to your neighbor in love. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you put unnecessary temptations and then you fall to the temptation or you're walking by the cookies later and you're like, Oh, Lord, help me. I said peas and carrots this morning. I was sincere. My spirit was willing. Don't do that. Don't put yourself in an unnecessary temptation. But there's going to be some temptations that just come your way. You didn't plan it. You didn't expect it. But here it is. The key is not to fall into it. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted, but he didn't give into it. And that's where we need his help. We need to be vigilant and awake. You say, well, what do we do with the flesh, Pastor Michael? What's the biblical remedy for the flesh? Well... It's not to treat it nicely. Actually, the biblical remedy for your flesh is to crucify it. This is Galatians 5, verse 24. It says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You're going to have to say in this coming year, yes more to the Spirit and no more to the flesh. And your flesh is going to cry out, What are you doing? You totally changed things up on me. And you're just going to have to say, shut up. No. What were the commercials in the past, you know, to drugs? Just say no. Well, look, you have the Holy Spirit. And you can just say no. You can just say, you know what? Lord, I'm going to ask for your strength, but I'm not going there. Romans 13, verse 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That means forethought and supply. Say you're going to go on a hike. You might stick some granola bars and water bottles in a backpack. You made provisions with forethought. But when it comes to the weakness and the sinful proclivities of your flesh, you're to give no forethought to supplying your flesh for the next indulgence. You say, no granola bars in the backpack? That's just an illustration. But you guys know what I'm talking about? You can't supply the flesh. Then you're just playing a losing game. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. By the way, verse 39 shows that it's okay to pray the same thing more than once. Paul prayed three times for a thorn in his flesh to be uh, taken away. Jesus prayed the same thing three times. If God hasn't told you to stop praying for somebody who's lost, or some situation, or some decision that's ahead of you, if you haven't gotten a word from the Lord to stop praying, then keep praying. The Bible says men ought always to pray, and what? Not lose heart, so don't give up. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking. And the Lord will open the right doors for you at the right time. And again, verse 40, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he said, Arise and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now I want to show you uh, two verses in Hebrews and we're done. Everybody turn to the book of Hebrews. You're going to have to go right towards the back of your New Testament. Pastor Chris, if you don't mind, come on up. And I'm going to share these two scriptures with you guys. 
from the book of Hebrews about Jesus' current ministry to you. Jesus is alive, and he's here to help you. Here's what it says. Hebrews 2, look at verse 9. But it says, But we do see him, that's Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, 9, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, Hebrews 2.10, for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Skip down to verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood were human. He himself likewise also partook of the same. He became human. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That would include all believers. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Since Jesus suffered the way that he did, he's able to help you when you're tempted because when you come to Jesus, you come to a glorified 100% God, 100% man. He understands temptation. He understands what it means to go through this stuff. Go to Hebrews 4, last one. Look at verse 13. It says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. In light of this truth, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of what? Of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to focus on a little phrase. See the phrase to help there? It is a nautical term and it is called frapping. The nautical term, the Greek word is botheo, the nautical turn is the idea of frapping. Now I thought, I had to look it up, because I thought frapping was one of those specialty drinks at the coffee house, but <laughs> it's actually not that. That's a frappuccino. But, but what frapping is, is you take uh, thick cables or thick rope, and you run it along the hull of a ship to stabilize it in stormy waters. The idea that we get grace to help in time of need in my experience, and I think the Bible bears this out, in most cases does not mean that God necessarily removes the storm, but he will steady your vessel in the storm. He will be with you through the fire. He will steady you so that your vessel will not break apart in the storm. How many times have you guys experienced that? How many times have you prayed about something and the storm wasn't gone but you felt the supernatural presence of God giving you perseverance, giving you strength. That's what Jesus does for us. And we have a merciful and faithful high priest. And each time you go through something and you come to him, he doesn't do this. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, here comes Michael again. Is he ever going to learn? That's my voice. My great high priest says, I know. I know. I understand. See, I often have another voice in my head saying, you're a loser. When are you ever going to get it together? But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, I know. I understand. Here's more grace. I'll keep dispensing it as much as you need. It's inexhaustible. Just keep coming, and I'll keep giving it to you. I don't mind if you come back on the same issues more than once, Michael. I know it's a struggle. I know there's times when you're weak. And what I want you to do is come to me and find all that you need in me because I understand. 
what you're going through. Maybe for some of us in this coming year, we can replace that condemning voice with those simple words. I know. I understand. Here's more grace for you. Amen? Father God, thank you for the precious people that have come out on this New Year's Day. Thank you for the year that's ahead of us, the year that's behind us, the days that you grant us your grace and mercy. We're here because we love you because you first loved us. Some are here because they want to get back close to you and some may be checking out Christianity, but whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray they would hear your voice in these closing moments. If you want to make it official and you want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want your sin forgiven and you want to know you're going to heaven when you die, you want to follow the Lord, you want him to be your shepherd, then it's something like this. And I would just ask you right now not to worry about anybody around you and worry about the one to whom you will stand before on that day, the one who loved you to the end. Something like this. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. Come into my life. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you that you went to that cross for me. Took my shame, my judgment, and bore my sin. I turn from my sin. I turn from my own self-confidence and my own idols. And I put my full trust in you. Be my Lord and be my Savior. Teach me what it means to follow you, to rely upon you. Maybe you need to rededicate your life right now. You can pray something very similar. Just say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want this year to be a year when I know you better and you use my life for your purposes. And Lord, for the precious saints of living truth, I just want to thank you for each of them. I pray that the beauty of your grace, the mercies that you pour out that are new every morning would shower on this precious group and that you'll give them many blessings, more than they could ask or imagine in the coming year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.